The Nebu Generator, a Pharaonic Formula for Wealth Creation. Chapter 3 Economic Magicians. Like a lot of people, I came out of college thinking that economics and personal finance all takes place in an arbitrary conceptual reality that bears only a secondary concern to my inner world of hopes and dreams. It was only later, after a long process of internal reflection and struggle with the real world, that I began to perceive the reality of value. I was studying many of the great left-hand path magi and esoteric teachers along the way, and each of them left me clues. More on my personal process can be found in the postscript for this book. No single one of these things at the time caused me to reverse course, but as I found each influence and allowed it to crystallize, I eventually built up some leverage. First, leverage to break free of the magnetic pull downward into inertia, and then to tap into the kind of magnetism that can pull you upward. Each of these magi left me a piece of the puzzle along the way, and as I began to put the puzzle together, a new reality began to materialize before my eyes. I realized some of these names may be more or less familiar depending on the background of the reader. I'll make no attempt to justify any of them or to give intricate details or background on the individuals named. My aim here is solely to illuminate the lesson in as efficient a manner as possible and allow the reader to decide if more research is in order. Anton LaVey, Responsibility to the Responsible. This from the seventh of LaVey's nine satanic statements from the Satanic Bible. Satan represents responsibility to the responsible instead of concern for psychic vampires. When I first encountered this, it felt like a huge blanket of guilt was being lifted off me. Embracing the principle of responsibility means realizing you won't ever get anywhere in life just complaining about others and whining and crying about how others have treated you. You have to take responsibility, and there is no way around this. And the way of responsibility is the way to sovereignty and personal godhood. From this I took the strength to believe in what is best for me and the courage to walk away from the crowd. Following the herd is generally the way to oblivion anyhow. Years later I would learn that this was one of the Ayn Rand influences in LaVey. Rand famously said that her whole philosophy could be distilled down to rational self-interest and personal responsibility. While LaVey certainly never took the principle as far into the realm of economics as Ayn Rand did, it's still a big part of his brand of Satanism, and anyone who embraces the value of personal responsibility will eventually encounter the work of bringing order to one's own inner house. There is also the first Satanic statement, Satan represents indulgence instead of abstinence which is essentially a tool for overcoming guilt. And there happens to be quite a lot of social guilt that gets tacked on to the idea of wealth. With these two concepts, responsibility and indulgence, 
LaVey teaches us that we can take care of ourselves, increase our wealth in the real world, and feel good, in fact, real good, about it. Aleister Crowley, Waste Not Good Coin on Perishable Good. I believe Crowley wrote these words somewhere in his auto-hagiography, The Confessions of Aleister Crowley. For some reason, it became an oft-invoked Crowleyism amongst my circle of occultnik friends in the 80s. Crowley probably meant this in terms of the question of the soul. You know the body is eventually going to die. At least with the soul, there is a chance it may live indefinitely. So put the lion's share of your time and attention there. With this statement, Crowley tells us it's smart to think about the value you will get out of something that you are considering investing your time, attention, or money in. And you don't need to feel obligated to give your time, attention, or money to someone else simply because they want or need it. All of your property, mind, body, soul, and resources are yours to do with as you wilt, just as do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. So even to the first great beast of revelation, creating wealth is an entirely lawful act. Michael Aquino, There is No Free Lunch In the early 90s, I found these words in Dr. Aquino's Black Magic essay, which is a basic user's manual for SETI and theory and practice. At the time, it seemed like it was probably a piece of folkish wisdom from the 30s or 40s, and later Dr. Aquino would share with me personally that indeed he learned this from his Italian-American father. As simple and obvious as it may seem, when applied to the principles of black magic, it came across to me like a revelation, and it became my personal motto. It's hard to say where this term originated, but it was also publicized in the 60s by Robert Heinlein in his book, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, in the law Tanstoffel, which stands for, There Ain't No Such Thing as a Free Lunch. This also happens to be a story where the smartest computer in the world concludes that a voluntary stateless society is the best society and dubs it rational anarchy. Coincidence? We suspect not. Magic isn't about getting something for nothing. It's not the quick and easy way. Really, it's just getting smart about things and realizing if you want anything of value in life, you will need to be prepared to put in some effort. It doesn't apply only to magic. It applies to all levels of life and existence. If you want something, you need to take steps to make it happen. You pay for it with effort, resources, labor, or sacrifice. It is not enough to simply sit around and whine and cry about life being unfair or that you deserve something just for being you. Whining and crying will get you nowhere and really only makes things worse. Compulsive whiners and complainers who get into magic generally gravitate toward what we call the right-hand path. Now, there may be times in life when you think you're getting something for free, but be warned, this is almost certainly an illusion. There is always a price, and you will pay it one way or another. 
This drags into the light even criminal notions that stealing is somehow a free lunch. But the price comes in the form of avoiding prosecution, jail time, and so forth. The truth is that when people try to get a free lunch, they end up not only paying for it another way, but actually paying more in the long run. The idea that you can get something for nothing is at the root of many sales techniques, and man's deep desire that it were so can make him vulnerable. This will be dealt with in greater depth in the chapter, Sweeping Away the Lies of a Pep. The lesson here is that if something is really worth having, then it's worth paying for it yourself and paying for it up front. Any attempt to circumvent this only creates room for chaos to creep in and start siphoning out any potential value you could have gained from the endeavor. Any attempt to dodge or delay only delays the inevitable price plus interest. G.I. Gurdjieff, Everything is Material Those who enter the esoteric world of fourth-wave teachings via the books of P.D. Ospensky might not see this immediately, as Ospensky tended to be rather dualistic and mind-versus-body in his writings. But Gurdjieff himself was definitely a materialist. Not in the contemporary judgmental sense of that word, but rather in the metaphysical sense of the word sense of the word. Gurdjieff was well aware of the Greek philosophers. He was half Greek himself, and his favorite was certainly Pythagoras. His Law of Three and Law of Seven are very much influenced by Pythagorean numerology, and his ray of creation is clearly in line with Pythagoras's music of the spheres. Pythagoras taught that man should aspire to a sense of harmony with this cosmic system, and Gurdjieff taught something very similar with his Institute for the Harmonious Development of Man. As well, Pythagoras is probably the closest exchange line for Zoroastrian ideas and Greek philosophy, as he was captured by the Persians and spent many years in Babylon. This would also appeal to the Greco-Armenian Gurdjieff, who grew up around Zoroastrian-influenced Sufis and dervishes. Regarding the idea of a soul, Gurdjieff's ideas about bodies and the possibility of creating higher bodies seem to be reflected in Aristotle's ideas about the soul, as discussed in his De Anima, which is a largely materialist approach to the idea of a soul. While Gurdjieff certainly taught that we cannot perceive the world accurately, this was the fault of our own perception rather than some inherent evil in the world itself. This perspective differs markedly from Plato, who considered the real world to be not just a perception problem but an impure thing in itself, having fallen from the pure world of the forms. Also nowhere in Gurdjieff do we find any of the totalitarian philosopher-king ideas of Plato, as found in his Republic. If any of the stories of Gurdjieff and his disciples avoiding Bolsheviks, Red Army, White Army, Wehrmacht, Gestapo, and so on are to be taken seriously, Gurdjieff was very much against the use of state force and sought to avoid it, not only in his life, but in his teaching as well.
In Gurdjieff's famous Everything is Material talk from the book Views from the Real World, he discusses how something like a material soul can be understood after one accounts for the varying density of gradational manifestations of matter. This is important because once we acknowledge on a fundamental level that things like wonder, value, and consciousness are all real and tangible phenomena and aren't limited by some conceptual and intangible realm of the forms, then we can start to focus on making real changes and start attracting more valuable influences to ourselves. Wilhelm Reich, Church and State are the Same Pattern. This is a recurring theme in Reich, but is of paramount significance in his early work, The Mass Psychology of Fascism. The first important thing in Reich is the idea of the orgone, a substance that flows through the universe that enhances life and is intimately connected with organic life and is manifest in the act of orgasm. Reich's next suggestion is that the church has blocked and inhibited the flow of orgone in the universe by imposing limits on individuals. In traditional religion, these limits are imposed in the form of guilt and negative associations on sexuality and the genitals. Consider the Augustinian doctrine of original sin here. The church's attempts at dominating society are pretty easy for most folk to see, but then Reich takes it to another level. His next suggestion is that the state imposes similar limitations and controls on the individual. Once a similar pattern of centralized authority is identified, it becomes obvious that the movement for a separation of church and state was simply the result of a conflict between these two organizations who were, in actuality, competing for absolute control over society. In fact, church and state are merely two different manifestations of the same structure of centralized coercive authority. Both seek to inhibit the flow of a vital human energy, and both focus on repressing sexuality in order to accomplish this. The church focuses on things like forbiddance of masturbation, no sex before marriage, no deviance from standard heterosexual activities, overseeing the institution of marriage, and so forth. The state also entreats on sexuality with age-of-consent laws, abortion laws, marriage laws, laws that seek to govern speech, pornography, profanity, public nudity, and so forth. Thus, in the end, Reich rejects statism for all the same reasons as he rejects the church, and he does so at a historic level in criticizing the totalitarianism of Plato's Republic, which famously advocates a money-free society that outlaws art and dragoons children away from their parents to be raised separately by experts. This is important when you realize that money represents a form of energy. The energy of value exchange. Central authority works to control, contain, and manipulate this energy stream every bit as much as it does the sexual streams, information streams, and so on. Here is the point where you might realize that if you have always had an aversion to or distaste for ideas like economics and finance, it may be because you have never really seen it before, because your whole life 
You've been surrounded by entities trying to cloud your vision and control your destiny. It is time to wake up. Ayn Rand, Creation Happens in the Real World. The first Ayn Rand book I read was Anthem when I was in college. I was recommended it by a friend in the art department because of its focus on individualism. It's funny when I think back on it. This was in the 80s, and we both considered ourselves liberals, but it was perfectly acceptable to talk about and even recommend an Ayn Rand book. This scenario couldn't happen today, as at some point between then and the new millennium, Ayn Rand became more evil by conventional standards than any of the other people I have mentioned so far. Even in Levan satanic circles, there is an effort to somehow cleanse Satanism of this wicked Rand influence. I know I started hearing more about the Rand influence on LaVey sometime in the early 90s, but didn't think much of it. Eventually, I finally got around to reading The Fountainhead and had to admit it was every bit as inspiring for the 30-something me as the Satanic Bible had been for the teenage me. The main character, Howard Rourke, gives life to his creations in the architectural realm by instilling them with his inner values of personal responsibility and rational self-interest. It is a great romantic illustration of magic at work and inner vision becoming real by force of will and conscious action. Both books talked about creation in the real world, but Ein did it in a way that brought the real world to life and showed magic happening in broad daylight in ways that most would consider conventional. I never talked about magic, but it is clear she found just as much beauty and wonder in the power of the human mind and will as Anton did. Like theirs, wealth creation is a form of magic that takes place in the real world and is a direct result of your creative mind and will at work in that world. Stephen Flowers, We Are Not Free in the early 2000s, Dr. Stephen Flowers, author of the quintessential Lords of the Left-Hand Path, was giving a series of public lectures at the Smithville Public Library in Smithville, Texas, located 45 miles east of Austin. Being only an hour and a half drive from my own home in Houston, I started attending these. I didn't know exactly what the talks were going to be about and was intrigued when the very first one I went to, he started off talking about the evils of property tax. Later, he would get into runes, Western culture, oral tradition, and all the other great things you might be expecting from Dr. Flowers, but this discussion about property tax really stuck with me for some reason. Now, at the time, I was still pretty far away from being a homeowner myself, so property tax wasn't something I really worried about. But Dr. Flowers went on to talk about how this tax could really be considered just a form of rent for living on the state's land. And so we really can't consider ourselves to be owners of it. He talked about how the idea of property rights was one of the core values of the founding fathers of America. And the idea that if people actually own the land, then they will make decisions that are in the best interests of preserving that land, using it responsibly and creatively and will always vote in the best interest of preserving the land and their private ownership of it. 
The next step from realizing property tax means you don't really own your land is deducing that all other forms of taxation mean that you don't really own anything else up to and including yourself. People like to laugh and shrug this off as sayings like, the only things you can count on in life are taxes and death. But really, it shouldn't be a laughing matter, because it means we are not free. It means we are in essence slaves, because this is a new kind of slavery. Call it free-range slavery. Because we can move around and do lots of stuff that feels free for the time being. Like free-range cattle, we get to wander around and have a nice time and enjoy the illusion of freedom right up until our owners need to liquidate their assets. This realization didn't so much illuminate a pathway to success as it illuminated a truth about reality. With this comes the realization that freedom, as always, is a struggle and a prize that doesn't come easily. When you realize much of what you thought was freedom is in fact a form of slavery, it gives you a sense of urgency. And as we shall see, a sense of urgency and a strong desire for freedom will be great assets in firing up the engines of the Nebu generator. There were certainly a lot more lessons in these few along the way, but it is important to understand that an individual's psychological and even magical development can and should occur hand-in-hand hand with their physical, social, and financial development. This reflects an integrated approach to life and personal development. It's beginning to look as though back in the day, that is, Pythagoras, Zoroaster, and Ramsey's day, the integrated approach was the rule rather than the exception. Something happened, and now a disintegrated approach seems the rule. That brings us to the next section. How did we become disintegrated, and what can we do to get things back on track, at least in our personal lives? <laughs>